Welcome. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, hey, we're going to have a very interesting show about uh, physics and metaphysics and different areas of science and somewhat, uh, we'll call it uh, a spiritual show based upon understanding fear of death. Now, why is death somewhat spiritual? Well, it depends. That's why we're going to talk about it tonight. Uh, and it's going to be an interesting show because it incorporates a whole range of varying parts of life. And uh, I'm surprised at when I uh, think about it, how great uh, a range this subject actually is. And you might say, well, what's so big deal about death? People just die all the time. Eventually everything dies, according to what we know, and anything that's alive, anyway. And so why do we need to know more about it? Well, <laughs> hang on. We'll cover that. So what do I mean by fear? Because we're talking about fear of death. So uh, I always try to define things at the beginning of the show before your mind's tired out there. And uh, fear of death is a uh, kind of uh, a, uh, we'll call it, a part of the process. In some circumstances, it is absolutely necessary. And that sounds like a strange thing, because most people consider fear a negative thing. But in reality, what is fear? Fear is the emotive response, the feeling that people have, of, um, of having to either experience pain and or suffering. And the result is usually the desire to avoid such things. So in other words, we're trying to get rid of the, the pain and suffering of our existence. And um, fear is a response to having, or potentially having, such uh, circumstances arise. And in general, it is a motive. That means it's an astral or feeling in comparison to a mental or a a third physical response, uh, because it is based upon what we're saying, uh, fear is, a feeling. It's a feeling or a sense that comes from the astral nature. So if we're just understanding death, well, that's a whole different thing. But if we're understanding the fear of death, then we're definitely talking about the astral response or reaction, the sense a person has about, in some way, facing death. Okay, It doesn't have to be their death. It could be a lot of different deaths. But nonetheless, that's where we're trying to uh, discover or better understand what fear of death is. And uh, that includes what is its value, how come it is the way it is, what sort of things have a fear of death, what things don't have a fear of death, all of that. Okay. So, to begin with, to answer one of those questions I just said, if you don't have an astral nature, you don't have a fear of death. <laughs> you may die, but you're not going to have a fear about it because the astral nature is what gives us that. We would need to have some correlative uh, astral or um, some people call it emotional nature or we wouldn't have fear. 
I think everybody would say, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And the things that uh, are generally afraid of death have some aspect of emotive sense. So, uh, to speak of it correctly, we would say that those things are uh, inevitably alive and have this astral uh, ability to sense. Included in that would be animals, because animals have, uh, by virtual definition, some emotive uh, response and uh, the sense and response. And so we could say, in general, animals have a fear of death. We could also say that humans, for sure, have a fear of death because we have an emotive response that's even wider and much stronger in some respects than animals have uh, on an image. And then if we were to carry this to its limits, what about plants? Well, the old plants. Uh, They don't have a nervous system, so if they have an emotive response, uh, they would have trouble uh, sensing it themselves. They don't have the correlative aspect of a nervous system in their astral body. They don't have a nervous system in their physical body. Uh, so, But they do, and we're going to talk about this in the show, have some uh, kind of more distant part of fear of death. And it has to do with what, what their total existence is, which is not just a single plant, but part of a group soul that uh, works with the sub-kingdom of Davis, uh, which is part of the energy kingdom, and that's part of the spiritual kingdom, actually, the sub-kingdom of the spiritual kingdom. And so you have all of this going on, that those beings convey some emotion to the group self. No, you didn't know that. No, that's true. They, they do. And the group soul doesn't necessarily... Uh, respond with an emotive factor, but uh, it, it can, because of a special communication line <laughs> between uh, divinic energies and, and the self of group souls, it can become aware of uh, some uh, fear of death in uh, plants, provided that it isn't a small number, but usually a large number of particular kind of plants. That can actually uh, have some effect on a group cell. So you see, the way this whole thing works is a little bit more deeper, we'll say, than uh, what most people would say. Wow, well, what's the what's the talk about fear of death? And uh, fear of death plays a prominent role in human affairs. Now, how come that's true? Well. Um, on Earth, it's unfortunately uh, more than just prominent. It might even be ultra-high levels because Earth is encumbered by a huge amount of darkness, evil, from other parts of our universe. And um, with all that darkness, darkness loves fear because Fear gets uh, people to become enslaved uh, because in order to avoid what the fear of death means to people, 
it's relatively easy to enslave them, steal some of their senses and power, uh, control them in uh, almost every way imaginable, uh, because they have a fear of death. And so on planets that don't have a significant or have no evil on them, uh, then the fear of death is not a significant part of life. And we're going to get to that in tonight's show. And on this planet, uh, attempts have been made to eliminate the fear of death. But virtually uh, to this time, they've been uh, pretty unsuccessful, except for a weird moment here. <laughs> well, it was more than a moment. It was a long time during certain parts of history. But these are prehistoric, and they don't, so they don't go, they're not in the history books. And we'll go over that and talk about how that um, uh, didn't last. Uh, and partly it didn't last because um, mistakes are made. Mistakes are made in how to help people become unafraid of death. And we'll go into what those mistakes were. Okay. Maybe it's good right now to um, also mention how the fear of death on Earth is uh, acting on us right at the moment, just so we can all kind of say, oh, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, Wait, let, let me give you an example. Let's say you've got a despotic ruler, named Putin, and he wants to come into, uh, you know, any old country he can find it. Uh, he can grab some land from that used to be part of the old Soviet Union and uh, make it a, a piece of Russia again so he has more power and uh, more Russians under his control because some of the people that live there are Russian, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, even though it's illegal, why is it illegal? Well, people can leave. You know, if the people in a part of, of Georgia, Ukraine, one leave. They can go into Russia and live there, or any place else they would want to do that. But we, you know, that's a convention in the world, starting somewhat with the United States, actually, uh, decided that countries uh, are autonomous, and they have their own right to the territory that they are recognized as having, usually through treaties. And once all countries being everyone who signs a treaty, says that someone has that particular territory, they don't have a right any longer to interfere with or especially come in and take the territory. The people there could leave. I mean, that's, that's true. But the territory remains under the control of the country uh, itself. And that was the principle, strangely, uh, here in the United States, under which... Um, and it's part of our Constitution. It's, uh, it, it, it's kind of strangely put in this Constitution, but it's there. Uh, that you can't, once a country is formed and everybody has a treaty with the country, in this case the states have treaties with the United States government, uh, it isn't a treaty, it's, a, it's an agreement. Though. And uh, once they're in, uh, in order to change the territorial... Uh, province of the country, the Constitution has to be invoked, and there has to be a change made in it, uh, or you can't secede. 
say, just because a bunch of people get together and they say, let's say they're living in a town in Texas, and they say, well, we don't like Obama very much. We don't like the U.S. government. Uh, we're going to just secede. Well, uh, I'm talking about that in today's world. They can't because they would first have to change the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and uh, probably make an amendment saying that, well, this town in Texas is no longer part of the United States. And uh, then people could do that. But, uh, of course, that's not what Putin did, and it's not what most despots decide to do. You know, and, and when I used to use the word despot, Part of that is deliberate so that you can think about this in terms of how fear of death gets involved. All right, so that uh, being the case, so it's it's just plain not legal to do this sort of thing. Uh, But he didn't care about the laws. You know, might makes right. Hey, and if you're a Russian that takes his shirt off on a drop of a hat, well, let's do it. You know, what the heck? Of course, he's not going to do as well in, in another decade or so when he starts getting kind of worn out. But it don't matter. You know, right now, it seems to be working. A little bravado and a lot of propaganda inside his country and somewhat outside. Uh, convincing people that, oh, those treaties we signed, we didn't really mean that. You can't believe that we were going to just let people be. You know, that used to be our territory. We're taking it back. Chinese have the same idea. they got a few islands they're interested in, and a couple other places. Of course, they took back Tibet. The problem was Tibet was never theirs in the first place. Well, it doesn't matter. They say it was. Uh, The object that I'm coming to is this. What is the basis for their being able to get away with this bullying of countries and this is, I'm using a very big scale here so that, so that we can understand this concept in its, well, say, bigger picture. Well, the big scale is that he puts about 20,000 people and then eventually 80,000 on the border, and some of them go marching in, they kill a few people, they take a few things, and everybody becomes afraid to die around them, the ones that don't want to rejoin Russia. Instead of the Russians leaving and going into Russia, they say, hey, let's make this Russia. <laughs> what the heck? You know, there's a, we'll take a vote on it. <laughs> That'll work. Oh, Constitution? Let's forget about that. It's, uh, we don't have to. Treaties? I mean, we'll, we'll just take our own vote. <laughs> there's enough of us. Okay. And, of course, in the United States, that happened with the southern states. Uh, in the 1850s and 1860s, they said, well, you know, we're going to take a vote. And they voted themselves out. Because uh, we didn't like that too much. We being the rest of the people in the United States. And, and 560,000 people, or in some cases, the estimates are probably closer to a million people, died. Oh, wait a second. So people fight wars and people die over the loss of territory. Why? Because it has to do with autonomy and the idea of autonomy. If you lose autonomy, you're losing part of your life. Okay? The fear of the loss of part of your life has to be 
overcome by a greater fear of life itself, a loss of life. And so you put 80,000 people on the border, or 20, or whatever it was, and you say, we're going to kill you immediately, right now, if you resist. And, uh, or you give in and will take part of your life, but not all. So fear of death has a relative sense, is a, a relative, is sensed in a relative way in people's astral nature. And it allows evil to use this relativeness of fear of death to intimidate and eventually enslave other people. They have been doing a whole time, a very, very long time. And, and it's so weird because the original fear of death, the original fear of death, started a long time ago. How long? Like, well, let me put it like this. It came in over four million years ago as a result of some tweaking. And it's actually over uh, closer to six months. Uh, the tweaking done by uh, parties that shouldn't have been doing what they were doing and thought they were helping out. Uh, some beings, uh, some of them came from Venus, you know, planet Venus, but not the physical planet. That, that it wasn't where it came from. They came from one of the subtle planes uh, from Venus. Most of them actually came from uh, the mental world, but there were a few stragglers that came from the uh, astral too. And they wanted to help out. They wanted to get Earth going, because after all, there's a connection. And they can't uh, become a sacred world, the whole world. They're not sacred mental, they're not sacred spirit uh, or uh, astral. And so they can't really get to the full, the full-blown sacred world uh, until uh, Earth is uh, mostly free of, um, of evil. And there, there's a reason for that because we, there, there is a common connection between. Uh, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And they, the, their connection together has very strong karmic aspects. And so the folks on Venus already know because they're like around ahead of us. And so we, we and so they say, well, okay, we'll go over to Earth and help them out. And we were pretty primitive at that time. This is the time of Lemuria. There were a few beginnings of Atlantis, but uh, it was mostly the time of the Lemurians. And uh, during the sixth sub-race of Lemurians, this sounds like a fairy tale for some people, but it's not. It's prehistory, and most people don't know that. Or they've read some book on it that sounds pretty strange. But there really was such a place. There really were people like this. And the sixth sub-race, of Lemurians, which uh, was the one that was most uh, spiritual, actually uh, started to get some understanding about death. And they actually were not that afraid of death. Now you say, well, that's good. You don't want people to be afraid of death. And you just said that evil uses fear of death, so that's what you need to do. 
Well, yeah. But evil has other tricks besides just using fear of death. It's using it right now. But when people know about what happens when you die, it's a different kettle of fish. All right, so what happens is, or what happened is, uh, these folks came to Lemuria, and uh, they wanted to be of service. They believed that if you just got the Lemurians uh, to uh, the six upright to become more spiritual focused, so they uh, and they could become uh, by their theory, their people would become conceptually if they became spiritually conceptual uh, of what death was and didn't, you know, have the wrong concepts about what death is in a spiritual sense, that that would turn them around and they would drive evil off the planet. And there wasn't much evil back then to drive, so it 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 seemed like a good deal. Well, okay, so what did they do? They started teaching and teaching and teaching. And I started using uh, various specific yogas, some of them were actually etheric, um, to try to get these folks to get their etheric senses. Unfortunately, I'm saying this now, unfortunately, their etheric senses somewhat fuse with the astral uh, senses, both of which, in both bodies, were the spiritual senses. So the spiritual are the heart and crown chakras, and they are trying to get these two bodies to fuse together. It's really a good idea, except there's a kind of a rule that they that we now know today because they made such a screwball mistake. And that was that you can't just fuse those two parts together without fusing the rest of the senses, which are the five mundane senses. We're all familiar with those. Um, they're still etheric, and you've got to do it kind of together. When you don't do it together, it leaves the opening, it opens the door to evil. It actually does. Because what happens is, evil can stimulate uh, the mundane senses for selfish activities. And now that there's a connection, a bond between the astral and the physical body, because of the spiritual connection at the six subways. It's a little bit complicated. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But uh, what took place was kind of weird uh, because what they felt in their astral bodies, their astral bodies were not unified at all, all except for somewhat the uh, uh, astral spiritual senses were a little bit now connected to the physical so what was happening is the um, the pe- the people who were aspiring to be spiritual affected their etheric uh, senses of spiritual nature, and for a while they became gung ho, really seeking, you could say, to become very spiritual, and they had like a large number of people in this subway, uh, leading what would be construed to be spiritual life. Sounds like a good thing so far. Except the dark side said, oh, this is our opportunity. What they did was, well, they waited till the subraces started to change. And when the seven subraces started to come in, they were able to turn this whole thing upside down. 
They said, okay, these people are now being somewhat controlled by their astral nature more than they were before, and they still haven't unified the five mundane senses of the etheric physical body. And that gives us the opportunity now to get them to want to have more things, more sex, uh, physical more physical things, more, more uh, want to have more power over other people. And so the seventh race comes in, and that's exactly what it does. It builds big buildings and it enslaves people, and it does all kinds of stuff. And when it does that, when it does that, originally the sixth sub-race, the people who are more spiritual, were losing their fear of death. They were really, you know, saying, well, you know, when you die, go to the afterworld. They got that kind of part down. Death isn't such an absolute thing. And... Uh, things are really hunky-dory because we're going to be living beyond this life. But the seven sub-rights people said, you know what? This astral world stuff seems like it's going to be missing a lot of what we're here to get. So why don't we focus on getting as much as possible while we're here? And this whole thing gets turned around again with the astral world. I mean, with the astral world. But but so they use the physical senses as sort of like a lure to become, uh, we'll say, totally absorbed and completely over the top in terms of sense, seeking uh, the, the increased sense of the physical world. And this was the nature of the seven summers. And that's how evil got that race to ignore further creation of unifying senses, and instead uh, got those folks to selfishly use their senses to overpower others, to take from them. And this is the first really sub-race where evil can be prominently seen. You go from a very spiritual race to suddenly a very evil race. Yeah, you can say, well, what did those Venusians do? Why didn't they change something? Why didn't they figure that, hey, this isn't going right. There should be something they should do. Well, they just figured, you know, they did the double-down system. <laughs> that uh, they had it right. They just didn't do enough of it. So they went on a kind of like a uh, vigil with the seven sub-race folks telling them, well, it's okay. You can build as many buildings as you want. You can have all the things you want. Uh, but the slavery business is really not so good because it's really uh, a bad thing. So instead of uh, enslaving people, um, you should, like we are, uh, help them to have more knowledge. And knowledge is really the important thing because it's through knowledge that you will begin to learn what what is right and wrong and you guys aren't getting it right now. But they were pretty much into the knowledge, we'll say, business. And the, the seventh sub-rights of Lanteans responded to this in a very crazy way. They said, okay, so knowledge is the important thing. And they decided to segregate people by their ability to know. Those that could be taught how to know were accepted in their society as being important and special. They were given more things to. And those who didn't know or had trouble knowing, and some of those were the more spiritual people because they hadn't focused much on what the 
the Nushian people were trying to tell them because they didn't think it was right. They wanted more consciousness, not just knowledge. Uh, those folks are targeted for destruction and enslavement. Okay, doesn't sound too good. Now you can say, well, how could they get so? I mean, if they're so advanced, how can they be so stupid themselves to do this? Because they kept replacing consciousness with knowledge, thinking that we'll get there in consciousness, we just got to keep giving them more knowledge. And they taught them a lot of stuff, actually, that they then used evil in evil ways to overpower others and to enslave them. Eventually, they started killing off the six separate people because, after all, they were a race behind them anyway. And they were smaller and much gentler, and they didn't have, they didn't have weapons like they had. And that sort of. So it was pretty easy to you know, get rid of them. You know, and then you can do what you want. Wow. So I don't want to belabor this uh, too much, but it's kind of interesting to see how fear of death has been used in different ways. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So you see one particular situation, one scenario, where it really didn't work out all that great. Now, you can say, well, wait a second. You, you just because, what about the people who are knowledgeable? Weren't they less afraid of death? You know? Well, yes and no. You see, they're... What they feared about death was that they weren't going to have physical things anymore. In a world without physical things, to people who are living selfishly to acquire them, is a world of, we'll say, uh, virtually uh, uh, being in poverty. Not poverty of the sort where you, you don't have enough to, you know, to eat, you know, that sort of thing. But because the eating is not even needed in the astral world. But that, to them, it meant that the after, after uh, the afterlife was going to be a horrible situation. And then the crazy Venusians, along with some other people, came up with an idea of explaining that if you go to the seventh subworld of the astral world, that people still do have things there. But you see, that's the lowest subworld. That's where people only go there because their consciousness is too low to go anyplace else. And it's where the door to evil also is open. And so they they opened it way wide with that idea because when people died, their desire afterward, which takes them to the world that they're going to go to somewhere, they're going to go to in the afterworld, was to have things. More and more things, 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 and it's still that way today, by the way. And so uh, this system got so nutty that um, the solution they were trying to get people to do, well, it's not so bad on the other side. You know, you guys have come up with these crazy ideas, like you don't want to go there, but it's not so bad. If you just got to, you know, there's a place you can go where you have all the things you want. More than you have here on Earth, physically. So, of course. Seven sub-rate people, where do you sign me up? How do I get there? And they actually created literally um, religions to help them get to the seventh sub-world. Man, all you got to do is just keep being selfish. You're going to get there anyway. You don't have to do anything. 
first they didn't understand that. Talk about evil turning things upside down and using against what was supposed to be an attempt to improve the world into a nightmare. Yep. Some of this remains today. It got so bad that uh, the evil ones in the Ace uh and that had just really st- started back in those days, uh, started to be able to make monsters that, and this is started on Lemuria. I know I've talked about it on Atlantis, but this is Lemuria now, that were on the fourth subplane of the Etherical. Because it, because it corresponded to this desire for physicalness. And they also had them almost immediately developed and working, so to speak, on people in the seventh subworld of the world, and they still remain there. Long way for them, folks. Okay. So, this uh, this story sounds like the nightmare from all of hell, right? And it is, unfortunately. Fear of death. We can see the fear of death has been twisted in so many different directions with such wrong outcomes. It's unbelievable. All right. Uh, let's see if I can tell you what happened next. And they used to say, what is the rest of the story? Well, it kind of goes like this. The astral world uh, became the focus, much more so, by the Atlantean people. And they were taught uh, by a whole bunch of uh, people from other worlds and from what was the emerging spiritual hierarchy of this world, that when you die... You go to the astral world, and there are very good places to go to where you live a more spiritual life. If you live spiritually here, it's much easier to get to those places because it's all determined by your own consciousness. Sounds very reasonable. And for millions of years, Atlanteans did not fear death very much. They, they feared some losses of relationships because they knew some of the complexities of time dilation and problems in maintaining uh, connections with people. But they weren't all that concerned. They also developed technologies that weren't so good for them. They used them, but some of them led them to be able to have contact with people in the 5th, 6th, and 7th astral subworlds. And that's where the most selfish people are. The very most selfish people, other than the evil ones in the sphere, is in the are in the seventh world, and there were a large number of them because a lot of them came from uh, the prior Lemurian uh, race. Now, the, most of them weren't Lemurians anymore, but the, the development of a, such a large subworld back in that, those days—it's very small relative today, but it's was huge then—was because so much of the focus of people's feelings were about that. A consciousness astral, and it didn't just go away because the Atlanteans took it. They were still lulled by some of them. All right, but they weren't so bad. They actually uh, tried to mitigate some of the, we'll say, uh, fears they had about that in ways that were pretty reasonable. 
Now, there, there were some religions that came about to for people to try to get to uh, the lower three subworlds, because that's where they thought all the action was. I don't know, crazy stuff. Again, knowledge became, though, an important mistake. Same folks doing it, by the way. Why not get the same, but from the same place. So we had some of these uh, folks from uh, Venus that decided it would be a good idea again, teach more knowledge to the Atlanteans because they might get it from them. They'll, they'll understand. So they taught all about the astral world and the death and everything. Again, using knowledge rather than consciousness as the issue. People thought if they had a lot more knowledge, they would be able to get more out of the afterlife. And the, the truth is that's wrong. It's more consciousness than more knowledge that gets you that. But that was a misnomer. And that led for the next round of uh, craziness. And evil this time uh, decided that it would be even better <laughs> to have people desiring to rather be dead, rather be dead, to live in the astral world than here totally. This was considered a wasted life. And why worry, be happy, everything was for a motive fun and excitement while you're physically alive, and then even more of it when you go to the astral world. Your reward for living an exciting and fun physical life was a much greater exciting and fun astral life. You can say, well, couldn't they figure out that was stupid and wrong? Well, some did, but most didn't. No, they actually bought this crap. And they went with it. And the world went completely crazy. Evil said, oh, this is too simple. <laughs> Let's bring some more Venusians over here. They're, they're making it easier than ever. And so that turned into a mess. And some of the inventions that earlier allowed connection between the astral and uh, the physical world were diminished because of wars and things, and so they missed that. And then they made up a lot of fantasies about it. Also, they had lower psychics involved. I mean, it got, it got nuts. It got nuts. And so we again see the fear of death is goofy. It is leading people into the strangest of strange things. Now, there's a lot more about this part to talk about fear of death, but we'll have to do that when we come back after the break. But I hope this is helping to start, you know, getting you interested in today, tonight's show because there's a lot to talk about. And it's pretty, pretty fascinating when we bring it into our current world. And we'll do that when... We come back, uh, which will be in about two and a half minutes from right now. Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet, I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower, M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. 
Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the whys, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. We're back. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight we're talking about understanding fear of death. (laughs) Sounds like a kind of morose show, but it's not. Okay, so where do we end off? Uh, well, the Atlanteans were getting this whole thing screwed up about death. and They weren't particularly afraid of death. <laughs> they wanted to die <laughs> in some circumstances. They didn't like the idea of torturous death or anything like that. But they didn't mind going to live in the astral They thought that things would be more fun and exciting there than they are here. And uh, the, dark, the dark ones were so in this model. And so life expectancy dropped, partly because people didn't care what they did. This is in the sixth subrace of the Atlanteans. They just didn't care. <laughs> if you're, what's the difference? You know, we die young, we die old. It's better over there, so why not go there? Uh, goofy, yeah. But at least fear of death, as we understand it today, was not as exaggerated. But it was nonetheless because what they were afraid of was more of life, if you think about it, physical life. And they were particularly afraid of uh, discomfort and, uh, we'll say, all the nasty parts of physical living. So the dark side, well, let's make it really bad here in the physical world, and we'll get more converts when they get over to the astral world because they're going to go, a lot of these folks are going to the seventh and sixth subworlds where we can make them even more dark. And that plan kind of worked. As a matter of fact, over hundreds of thousands of years, well, it seems like a lot of time, but the things grew or developed much more slowly back then than they are today. And, but over that period of time, the uh, this whole Atlantean sub-races, the sixth and the seventh, became very dark. And one out of four people by the end of the seventh sometimes were evil. It was a progressive thing because of this crazy understanding. 
And again, it came from knowledge being more important than consciousness. Well, the Atlantean period had to uh, come to an end, somewhat uh, in a uh, sudden way. And that led to a decision. The decision was those in the know, mostly from this planet, not taking any advice from people from other planets, because they weren't doing so great, um, that from that point forward, there would be a mystery or mystification of what death was, and only to be found by those who were conscious enough, spiritually conscious enough, to be able to understand it. And then it would be safe for them to have both the knowledge and understanding or consciousness of the situation together, because they would match each other. This is the model that is still held true to, to today. That means that most, almost all, of the knowledge about what happens when you die was mystified and was removed from the understanding and consciousness of people until they became spiritual themselves and could understand it. So without understanding, knowledge was restricted. And that is the thing that stopped evil from growing in a decline up to a certain point. Now, evil doesn't remain just like, well, okay, we'll just move over, roll, roll over and forget it. Now, they come up with some other plan. It's not usually uh, as, uh, let's say, advanced in thinking as uh, lightness, but they do come up with some doozer of answers sometimes. And one of them was, okay, so now that the new rules are that people aren't going to know what happens when you die, then we'll use that to scare them. And we'll make up all kinds of fearful things about what death is about. Now, for the people who are religious, we'll tell them they're going to hell. For the people who don't believe in God, we'll tell them it doesn't matter because you're not going to exist at all. It's just like, bing, lights are off and you're gone. And for people who are uh, agnostic, they don't know for sure and they're not willing to bet at any horses, then the dark side's got, hey, that's cool, you can do that. There's no problem with that, actually. The best thing to consider is this, that get as much as you can while you're here and worry about death when you get to the other side, if there is one. So why not go down that road? And these um, have been very effective, these particular, well, say, positions that uh, April has taken, because um, the fear of death is strong when you eliminate both knowledge and consciousness about death. So they use the fear of death while people are alive to uh, get people to become much more afraid about everything and then that allows evil ones to enslave. And you get, going back to the beginning of the show, you get Putin's and other folks uh, running around uh, saying, hey, uh, I'm, I'm on the side of darkness, so let's use this fear of death to give me more power and control over it. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very convenient system. Okay. Now, what is what is it that this show is trying to do? Here we are talking about the same subject, right? Uh, we're, we're working within the philosophy of 
ago, but presently the same thing is happening, that people cannot become more um, knowledgeable about the afterlife if they're not more conscious. So that rule still applies. However, the method of, of mystification has now been changed. Instead of mystification, there is a new method that relies upon uh, a, a condition called love wisdom and the seeking of truth in, in the middle part of existence, changing the point of, uh, we'll say, focus from what has been uh, a, almost a secret to you can you can completely under you can can completely learn the knowledge provided you uh, have significant levels of understanding or consciousness. Uh, otherwise, the knowledge will remain hidden by the way that it will be taught, and that's the new new system. And that's just you know I'm one of the beginning guys doing this. There'll be others, but I'm one of the first, if not the first, actually, to demystify and to bring about this system carefully that will uh, allow people to become much more conscious about what death is about, and we are other things, huge in that sort of thing, but death is tied into it. Uh, and to not be able to have enough knowledge that it would be toxic for them because uh, the knowledge is continually tied to spiritual concepts from a certain part of the mental mind that uh, prevents it from being distorted into evil. Gotcha. That's how, that's how I work. Yeah. And uh, I've, got a, I've got a formula, you could say, a structure to how I teach so that I adhere to that. Uh, I mean, I could go down another road, and do something, you know, other than that. But that wouldn't be what I'm here for. So, there you have it. And a lot of people say, what's people, what's others, stopping others from doing just that, taking what you've got and doing it because they can't. I just lie. <laughs> you know, I make sure that um, everything I talk about is conceptual enough so that you can't get the knowledge without the concept. Some people don't like that and uh, they've already turned off. So no, we're not we're not they're not connected. <laughs> they're not listening. And they're certainly not reading anything I've written. Yeah, the whole works. They're 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 into a different place. And certainly I'm not part of it. But that's the good thing. That's that's the reason that you know, I'm not going down the road to become quote-unquote popular because there's ways to do that by disseminating quote-unquote information as knowledge or trying to help people to gain knowledge without being concerned even more so about their level of consciousness. And I'm just not doing it. And so that's the reason why is because it would be very destructive to do that. And for someone else to do it, if someone else is going to teach the way I'm teaching, there are people that will, will be doing it, um, they will be in the same mindset. So they won't do anything different, uh, not significantly anyway, because they'll be at the same level of consciousness, so they won't be able to understand what I'm teaching well enough to teach it. And what they'll teach will be something goofy and, and useless. 
you know, they might become a lot more famous and popular, but that doesn't mean anything. All right. So, you see how it works. Fear of death is a, uh, is a methodology that has been applied by evil for millions of years, successfully, much more so than that. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying, isn't it? All right. Now, uh, I want to go into some more, we'll say, uh, present-day issues. We've been very historical about this, and I think the history of it is interesting. But let's talk about this in terms of when is it safest to help somebody to understand fear of death? Well, when it's imminent and when, uh, no matter what happens, they're going to be leaving in relatively short time. It's almost at that point uh, the safest place for even novice teachers of some sort to be able to teach. Uh, and that's where hopefully uh, I will see that develop to some extent. Well, people uh, in uh, uh, the last months or a couple of years of their life are much safer to teach than people who are very young and who are looking for something else, even though they might say, well, I really want to know this stuff, you know, man, cool. Yeah, but they may not want to serve. They may not want to be closer to the creator. Of course, someone who's very ill and at the end of their life may not want to do that either because they can't. That's an unfortunate quagmire. But there's not everybody's in that position. All right, so when we look at this, you know, today, it's the fear of death is still greatly used. Now, what can, what can we really do in, say, the next 10 or 20 years to make the changes? Well, it would be helpful if the teachings that I'm doing and some others uh, would address these issues in ways that are conceptual and get more people to want to understand it in a conceptual way, spiritually conceptual, uh, which is safe. And then those people would lose their fear of death. Why would that happen? Well, because what I teach is that consciousness doesn't ever die. It doesn't die. Bodies die. They go away. But consciousness, mm, not so much. Uh, you could destroy your consciousness. You can lower it. And people do that. I've seen people lower their consciousness dramatically in a few weeks. But the thing is that uh, for most people, they have an average. And they kind of stay within that average. And they can move it up or down, but a bit at a time, over time. Consciousness is the answer for getting people to uh, no longer be afraid of death because they understand that it's going to last beyond the physical body, beyond the astral body, beyond the lower mental body, and become part of their soul. And that's a very, very good, uh, we'll say, understanding because it leads people away from the fear of death. Most people that are afraid of dying, well, they have some concerns of the discomfort uh, in a pain 
sort of way, and there's some suffering in the physical or other way, body-wise. But there's there vast amount of fear is about not existing in consciousness. That's where most people's fear And when people understand the, the life cycle of the soul, so to speak, and that the, uh, the human soul is confined to an area where it can't interact very much. It can inter- interact with other souls to some degree to Dependent upon its level of development, but it can't interact with almost any other kind of life form. And that's big. Human beings want to interact. So, how do we resolve that? Well, we incarnate. <laughs> and the incarnation method is a way of gaining bodies and senses that function in places lower in uh, dimensionalities of where the human soul exists. That's the ticket. What we call life is a journey of experience in lower dimensional realms to interact with other life to gain an understanding or consciousness about life itself and how to co-create with life and then eventually how to co-create with the creator of life. All of that is part of what the soul is doing. And when we get the whole cycle of it, the fear of death just melts away. You end up with a a sense of immortality. And you see the future not as the future of the incarnation, but the future of a soul which will eventually liberate itself and have its own much larger life in higher dimensions than the three lower, where we are right now. Because the soul is only here to understand how to be an individual and co-create with God in these lower dimensions. It eventually won't need to do any more of that and will say, I got it. I've been there. I did it. I, 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 I co-created myself more into God in those realms. I have created more life there. And now I go to other higher realms to do the same in those places. And the journey never ends. Because eventually souls become part in a marriage part, a cosmic marriage, of their alter ego souls, which are called solar angels. And those join with the monads, or a monad, and then the monad becomes... Uh, literally, the experience of all of God in this universe. And then it moves on to other universes. And eventually it will someday be a God, as a God of this universe, of its own universe. And then there's infinite varieties of, of growth in universes with no ever end. The only thing that ends is evil. Evil's got a one-way ticket to end it. And eventually its end is to come back to becoming a part of humanity in a much longer time in the future after it has suffered immensely and appreciates then the opportunities that I just told you the soul goes through. The souls are really here to enrich themselves and the monad connected to them and God uh, through interactions with the incarnates of other souls in the 
and lower realms where souls can't live, and only incarnates can, because the body's and senses distort reality so badly, and the forces are so great, no soul in its native sense and form could exist here. It is possible someday that wouldn't be a true statement, because if Earth becomes a sacred planet in all of its dimensionality, then souls could be right here, right now, with us. Possible. Then everybody would be a soul living in all the dimensions of time and space, and that is what happens when the sacred planet becomes sacred in all dimensionality. It's a wonderful thing when it happens. It's a joyful thing. Will it happen on Earth? Oh, God. I hope so. I'm not sure. The fear of death may stop it. It's such an um, intoxicating part of being physically or astrally alive that few people ever get over it. Even when people die from the physical world, go on to the astral, they still have a fear of death. Why would that be? I mean, certainly you would say, well, okay, you know, it's not wasn't all that comfortable dying, but it's not so really terrible, and you end up in this really nice place. Why would people still be afraid of death if they were in the astral world? Well, the answer is this. The, the uh, overwhelming fear of death is oftentimes removed. But the idea that eventually consciousness may cease because if they don't understand the things I'm telling you on the show, by any stretch, in the lower parts of the astral world, uh, then those folks have still a grave concern for the long term. It's not as it's bothersome to them there as it is here because of the just the length of time. Here it's a short period of time relatively to what the astral life is like. But it's still in the back of head, their heads, particularly for people in the sixth and seventh, and some of them in the fifth subworld. It's a problem. And, uh, of course, the teaching of angels' wisdom, this is I'm doing, would be of great service, and some of that is done by people from higher uh, dimensions of time and space, sub-dimensions. They teach in the lower one. But that doesn't necessarily help because the people's consciousness is not high enough to grasp it. So it doesn't necessarily work for them. It's unfortunate. So here we have a whole other dimension where you would think, well, I got it figured out, right? I mean, they got it realized. And they didn't die when they died physically. Why should they think they're going to die when they die after? It's very ingrained in them. Also, religions sometimes don't help. Some religions teach wrong understandings, of course, about death, and uh, people are tied so strongly into the beliefs of their religion. They actually have more fear from them and less, we'll say, clarity of consciousness and uh, fret about it at a considerable level. Some people, even when they're fairly high in consciousness, still have doubts or concerns, coming, which is fears, coming from having been taught for so strongly and for so long uh, their religious views. So that's another problem, and it does happen all over the astral world in this problem. Now, when people get to the mental world, um, they, they're starting to get a clue if they get past the fifth sub-world, the mental world, at the light. Uh, some people do, uh, quite a few, probably the majority. And um, 
then they start getting some of how the whole system works. They don't get the whole thing. And it may take a couple hundred years before they even get out of the Akashic uh, part of it. But eventually they're able to communicate with their people in the higher, uh, lower parts, higher, higher, lower parts of the lower metal world. Uh, I'm confusing everybody. Well, in the lower metal world, the higher subplanes of the lower metal world. I'll say it that way. People do get it there. And they don't have it perfect, but they're starting to understand what their soul is doing. And once they got that part, they put the rest together and say, you know, I don't think I'm going to really die. I'm going to go back in a higher state of consciousness and be my soul. Right now I'm just limited by all this egotism and other stuff I've been suffering through here in the Akashic experiences. And I'm out of those now, but starting to make plans with other people that exist here. But in the air talking about being their soul, Starting to get it, but it's, you know, still some questions, still some things I'm not sure about, but it looks like I'm never going to die. Now, to the personality, that may not be a completely true statement, because our personalities, it depends on how much they're fused with the soul and how much they can experience and what the soul experiences. If, it, if a personality is a young personality, it can't really, and it has never fused with its soul, it doesn't really know what the experience of being a soul is like. And it doesn't do that well in the, in the in the higher parts of the lower mental world because it might only live there for, for months or, or a year or two uh, because it's used up most of its mental sense. Working on the, in the lower uh, mental sub-world where it was very egotistical while, while it was uh, physically and astrologically. And so it, it's just an undoing so much that by the time it has any, we'll call it free time, that is it caught in the past, uh, there's very little left. Those people still, when they die from the mental body, they still awaken. It's like they, were, they fell asleep. And they might have some terror about it. They might say, oh, I'm going to sleep, maybe I'll never wake up again. And then suddenly they're the soul. They're back into the soul in the higher mental world, and they say, well, I'm here. I've always been here, but I was down there. For a part of me was down there. And that personality, uh, didn't, if it didn't fuse with the soul, it's gone. It's just gone. You say, well, isn't that death? Ah, caught you. That's death, see? Error, we should be afraid. Personality doesn't doesn't last in younger younger souls, selfish souls. Well, that's not true. Because the personality was never really us. It's subconscious to us. The part that we're concerned about losing is ourself. And that doesn't go away. As a matter of fact, it expands. Some in the astral world, a lot more in the, in the mental world, even the lower parts of the mental world. So you don't lose anything. You're getting bigger and bigger in yourself. It's the subconscious part, the part that's childlike and silly to some extent. That part is either fused with the soul or curtains. Bye-bye. Now, there actually are exercises that people go through in the mental world, sometimes with helpers. Some of the helpers are actually people who are more advanced in the mental world than a higher sub-world. Sometimes they come from other service. But these exercises are actually to help people to uh, to comfort their subconscious or personality. They have conversations with them. <laughs> that weird. Oh, there must be all schizophrenics up there. Yeah, a little bit, maybe. I don't know. But they, they have conversations with their personality. 
because they recognize the personality as being a more energy kind of being, part of them, and the self being more spiritual or made of spirit. And so what they do is in these exercises, we'll call them, and this is after the Akashic experiences. You can't do this with egotistical people. It doesn't work. But if the person is basically kind of cleared of most of their egotism, you can get them to converse with their personality. They even do this like in almost group sessions sometimes. Uh, I know, those are these uh, personal growth groups of the middle world. Yeah, well, they are, you know. <laughs> Something like that. And the uh, folks will actually work on getting over the fear of death that their personality has. They, they recognize the difference at that point. And they tell the personality, look, I don't, I don't want to leave you strangling here. What I need you to do is to become connected to the soul, which is what I'm going to, and I'd like you to be there with me. The only, the only thing is, the only part that's going to be there with me is the part while you're here in the mental world that we served you. You've lost the service you could have done in the physical and astral, but at least this will give you something. There will still be a piece of the mental, of the personality left. That piece is called the first, uh, or some people call it the mentally related uh, part of the personality, which is the it's on the first sub subplane of the fourth subplane. That's where that piece of the personality. That's the only part that will remain if you haven't done some fusing before you get to the mental. Level. But at least that part that's in the mental unit will remain if you convince the personality to relinquish control. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, it's got to say, okay, I'm going to trust you, self. Now, the self has to be joining with the higher self when it's doing it. And I'm going to join with you, uh, but I also will join with the soul, which means I'm going to give all the knowledge I got to the soul for its purpose of creating whatever it's doing in its service, which is working with other souls to help them have a better incarnation. And I'll work with it, but I won't be subconscious anymore. It means I'm going to have to be a little bit more conscious in the process. And I'm going to be joining with something that's foreign to me. It's the spirit of the soul. And when I do that, I'm going to throw the soul off balance. It actually throws it off balance. And the soul's going to have to raise its consciousness, which it does do, to balance out this uh, added energy coming from the uh, lower metal world, which is where the uh, part of the personality is. And it actually, you can make a deal. It's like, let's make a deal. <laughs> Choose door number one and go to your soul. Choose door number two and you go nowhere. And door number three is probably lost you completely. So, I mean, this is how it works. And so, you know, the, the personality is faced with this, and it experiences some of the last remnants of what we call fear of death. Uh, it, it still is bothered by it unless it starts to do some of the fusion. And the percentage of fusion ha has to equal the capability uh, that the personality has developed in its, in its own existence during the time it was uh, here in this incarnation. And each personality is a bit different than that, so it, it has to match it. If it matches it, then you can get the fusion going. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, some people manage to do this. They actually do, and they overcome their fear of death that way, even in their subconscious place. 
the conscious mind is fine. Even in the subconscious mind, uh, in the mental mind. I mean, that isn't, you know, if that isn't awe inspiring, and if it doesn't give you some kind of like, wow, there's some hope. Yeah, there is some hope. There's hope for people right up to the very, very end that they could um, not lose anything in the process. But remember, the conscious part of us, the self, doesn't go away. You can diminish the self, and you can hurt the self very badly. If you do that, that's what you end up with. It isn't that it went away. You went away before you died. You, you, you can lower, you take some drugs today and you can lower yourself by tonight or tomorrow. It's easy to lower consciousness, which is the self. It's harder to do it if you join the lower self with the higher self from the, from the solar angel. Because then they're more permanent. So you can diminish it on your own, but it isn't like the self is dying and you, you're doing a hatchet job. You're destroying it yourself. Yeah, the self is destroying the self. Or sometimes the personality helps as well. But that's a different thing than truly dying, unless you consider suicide. I mean, in a way, that is, right? So it's a chosen death. If you choose to die, are you afraid of the choice that you've made? Well, that's a really interesting <laughs> philosophical question. Maybe. Who knows? But... Still, it is the choice the person makes, and we got to look at it from that standpoint. All right, so let's uh, let's look at where we're at. Wow, so we covered a lot of ground, right? It's, it's terrific. Fear of death is really coming from, if you look at it, the loss of consciousness of self, and that comes from being selfish. Selfishness is directing. Uh, energies which are hostile to our nature and diminish our spirit and our energies in all of our bodies. So selfishness is our big danger. Selfishness is produced by an over-controlling personality or by a self that has mimicked it, and itself is selfish. All right, so selfishness is what leads us to what we think of as death, although even then we don't really die. We diminish ourselves, our consciousness, and we may have a lot less that we get out of life, but we really, there is no actual death, per se. Oh, that's an interesting idea. So, eliminating selfishness is a lot of what I teach, as you know. If you can get people to eliminate selfishness by nature, they will overcome their fear of death. Because the self will grow enough to join with the higher self. And by nature, not by even having to control, the personality will start to fuse with the soul. The personality is, again, more energy than the spirit, and it uh, is more, therefore, sense to the soul than it is. Very, very interesting ideas. Okay. Uh, I want to talk, I'm going to shift gears just for a few minutes. I talk mostly about human beings, as you know. And I started tonight's show talking a little bit about other kingdoms, etc. I want to add uh, 
at this point about those other kingdoms so that we can now understand why they don't suffer really a fear of death like we do. Uh, I had to go past the point of explaining the self and consciousness to explain this part about the other kingdoms. So let's look at it from this standpoint. Let's take a plant, a flower. Uh, generally speaking, they really don't have uh, any consciousness to speak of. They, the most conscious part of a flower might be some of the divinic energies that are actually beings they've developed and that share their beingness with hundreds of thousands of other flowers and they sense what's going on even on an individual level to some extent uh, with any flower that is an individual. So they do sense that. But, but, in general, the individual consciousness of a flower is extremely minimal. And it only comes from the group soul. A little piece of the group soul itself uh, is uh, coming into that flower. And it ha- helps the flower to turn to the sun and do a bunch of other things, you know. That it, that it keeps it alive, and it how to bring water up to its stems by creating osmotic pressures and doing certain other things. All these things are uh, part of how the life works. But in terms of fearing death, virtually none, because since the real fear of death is loss of self, to an individual plant, it was almost meaningless, if you can think about what I just said. And even to a large number of the same kinds of plants, it's minimal. The part that senses the most amount of what we'll call fear of death, it's more of regret of death, but I'm saying whatever way makes people more comfortable, is in regret of death is coming from the divonic energies that are serving that species of plant. And the connection through the self to the group soul. The group souls actually have a response. Now, because they exist in a mental world, they're not, it's not a fear. It's a regret. What's the difference? Because, well, a fear would mean that the group soul would have an astral nature, which it doesn't actually have. Not really. It has some context from the divinic beings uh, that gives it their impression astrally of what they're experiencing, that these are astral divine beings, that some of them are. So it gets information from them. It doesn't actually experience their feelings, but it gets the information of their feelings, which can worry it. And it can be concerned, which is a sort of fear, in a sense, a concern means fear to some extent. And the, the amount that their fear is, it's really mental in response. It isn't it's like, okay, I worry that some of my uh, plants are dying, which will affect animals or everything. It will affect them, and they bring more oxygen into the air, and they do this other thing, they hold the soil. I don't know that. But they regret it from the standpoint of it being life, not being an individual thing, of, of, of like a person, because the self is blurred in tongue, is minimal, and applies in general to all types of that plant, not to the specifics. So we 
see now that you really not only need to have an astral nature to fear of death, you also need to have some level of consciousness that equals what we would call pretty close to a self. You have the kind of fear that humans have of death, for sure. Follow all that? That makes sense. Now, see, that's why I'm kind of looping back. <laughs> because it wouldn't have been proper to talk about all this until we got some of the other stuff down. Okay, so... What about animals? How does it affect animals? Because a lot of people have an interest in this. It's much more interesting because they have pets. And they have watched pets die. Sometimes they euthanize them, which is always a difficult thing. And you, you, you deal with this kind of issue sometimes more tangentially, but more effectively with pets. I mean, it's seriously, even to young children, over the fish die. Did a quota fish happen? Can we bury it in the backyard? Don't put it down the toilet, please. All right. You know, if, if we have these experiences. That these are common to, to us, right? I'm not saying all well, children react to a goldfish that way, but, but some do. depends on the nature. And usually it's a younger one. All right. So what is happening? Well, first of all, we do a lot of projection of our fear of death into things less conscious than us. We, we kind of uh, fantasize that they have our same reaction. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence that they do, but we like to, you know, we give them names, we pet them if they're petable, we, you know, we, we, we pay attention and put use time and energy in, in the function. And it makes them important, it makes them meaningful to us. The, the point I'm trying to get at, and this isn't true just of, all, of pets, it's true of a lot of other animals that are not our pets, for some people. Some people are very sensitive to this, right? What do the animals actually experience, though, is really what we're dealing with. Do they have a fear of death? The answer is yes. They have a fear because they have an astral nature. And uh, the stronger the astral nature, which is the more astral centers they have, the more fear they're going to have of death. So you can literally calculate the fear of death by knowing how many centers a particular species of animal has. Fascinating, isn't it? Whoa. So a, um, a great ape, uh, you know, an orangutan, or possibly a, a, a gorilla, a mountain gorilla, very advanced uh, in their astral natures, uh, might have a profound a sense of fear of death and sense of loss when some part of their troop or their, whoever they might be uh, doesn't. Yeah. They might really react more human than some humans might. <laughs> uh, because they have an answer. And now the question comes in about self. Do they suffer the same consequences from their fear of death in experiencing parts of that the way a human being does. And the answer is, unless they really, really develop the self because they've been close with people, that's the only way they can do it on an individual basis. Um, no, they don't have the same sense of want that we do. I'll give you an example so we can be clear. A mother... The mother elephant 
gets eaten by something or whatever. And um, she experiences an immediate loss. She may become highly, we'll say, agitated, regretful, uh, seriously despondent. This is all true. Even if she's not a pet, she's just a normal elephant. This is the one for days or even weeks. However, at a certain point, she just forgets it and walks away. Now, why is that? Because the nature of her structure of self is much, much less than humans. And so, to her level of consciousness, the suffering she experiences because of the death is much Does she know that the, the baby elephant is going to go to the astral world and have a life there? No. Probably not. I've been asked this a lot. Do dogs and cats know they're going to go to the astral world and have a life there? She doesn't know it, but she's experienced it. Now, let me explain the difference. This is a tough one. We know what experience is. Experience means that you go someplace and you have, or do something and you have, you have senses that brings in information, and that is what we call experience. Knowledge has been created uh, in another way. It has to be integrated together by, if it's an animal, by a group soul. And that it takes a very slow process. And the animal itself, uh, on an individual level, uh, has even smaller percentages of what called created knowledge about its world. Some. Some is true, but not enough to create the development of what is known as a self, only with the help of a human being does that arise. So, to the animal, it has experience of the astral world. Now, you're going to say, when? Where? When they go to sleep, animals uh, experience the astral world. They actually uh, dream, but they have uh, experience of it, and that gives them. Not knowledge in the sense like we have knowledge. They have experiential, we'll call it knowledge, but it's not real knowledge. Because they don't have enough consciousness to understand that. So they know something, but they don't know it in an understanding way. And so they don't carry through with the thought that, oh, uh, my baby is going to be living in the afterworld, it's not so bad. Rather, they have the experience of it, which gives them a part of life, and they know when they go to sleep they experience it, because uh, what part of them that is conscious goes away. So they think that life in the afterworld will continue to be an extension of life here to some extent with uh, a lack of consciousness which to them is not all that meaningful. However, you should be aware that animals actually have more consciousness, but only after they go to live in the animal. So the experience they have only goes so far. They don't have an understanding great enough to see the whole picture. And I'm talking about in general now. Could a few animals, group of pets, and develop great self maybe develop that ability? Yes. But in general, no. So, bottom line, do animals fear death? 
they do to some extent. Obviously, from what I said, they have an astral nature. They have um, they have some experience in consciousness to it, but they don't experience the same level of suffering, nor do they see, sense the same amount of loss that we do as human beings. From my ex- explanation of the elephants, you can see that uh, that would be a true statement. And we could use gorillas. We could use other animals, and it would be something similar. And the higher the level of consciousness, the more it gets to the experience of a human being, but it isn't the same. All right? So animals fear death, but they don't suffer the effects of death, either of those around them or of themselves, um, as greatly as humans do. Now, we compensate for some of our suffering because we have two senses in each of our three bodies that helps us to understand God. And we can fill in the blanks by using this understanding of God during periods of experiencing death. Children have a limited amount of this, depending upon what their experience is. But as we grow older as adults, it's more and more common, obviously, as people around us die. And we're more uh, understanding and aware of what's happening about us than a child. So you can say that a human being are starting to overcome their fear of death in a way that was given to them by becoming a human being because they have an understanding and a way of co-creating with their, with their creator, with God. And that relieves ultimately the fear of death, which is really what the rest of the show is going to be moving into because what it does is it substitutes for the personality, which is frightened, and the lower self, which is limited in consciousness, with a new couple of senses, and the senses which I just described in the animal kingdom, being so limited, provides only a limited means of consciousness, very small now, uh, but it also means somewhat less suffering. But in our particular case, it's the opposite. If we use our spiritual senses, because and the only way to use them is not by, well, I'll practice using it. It's by service, by focusing out, by becoming, what I said earlier, unselfish. When we get to that point, we awaken to uh, a much higher level of understanding about the whole universe. See all the connections, this is what consciousness does for us, and realize that we will not lose consciousness, we will gain it, we will not ever truly cease to exist or die, as many people believe it. And there is no reason to be afraid of death because death is illusion caused by our selfishness. Wow. And it blocks us from using these higher senses, the two spiritual senses, and the third physical, the astral, and the mental body. And actually, in the mental body, you have a lower and a a higher part that you could claim you have senses of each and that, but truly the spiritual senses are actually conceptual, so they're in a higher part. And when you put this all together, we are endowed, we are given the ticket for overcoming fear of death, and you don't have to trick people, and you don't have to teach them 
odd things that will lead to evil infesting them and doing crazy stuff. All you need to do is get them to use the senses they already got by being unselfish. Get them to become less selfish and they will lose their fear of death. And they will become joyful rather than suffering. They will become uh, creative. They will become enlightened. All that is where we really are in terms of who we are. And we're going to talk about the individual aspects of this in a second, but I'm going to just take a quick little spray of my throat here. Got to keep that voice going for you. See, the volume goes up. Ooh, look at that. That's great. Uh, Okay. So, what happens now? Individuality is part of the defining aspect of being a human being. Human beings, unlike the animals or the elephants, can sense their own individuality at a very high level because it's connected with the development of self, including not just the lower self, but the higher self as well. And this is developed only through being unselfish. Only. There's no other way to do it. I know people come to me, well, what if I say these uh, these, uh, invocations? What if I go and uh, do do meditation? What if I give money? What if I do something else? Um, Will that work? Well, it will work as long as you're unselfish. (laughs) Other than that, nope. You can do anything you want. If you're still selfish, it won't work. Okay. That's the problem. The problem is the catch twenty two. You've got to be unselfish no matter what you're going to choose. So there's no there's no cheating way. You know, you get it's like, Well, I'm really selfish, but how about if I make it look like I'm not? How about if I make a lot of people happy? I'll give them a lot of my money or something. Will that work? <laughs> well, if you help them to become unselfish in your giving, that'll work. If you make them more selfish That'll go the wrong way for you. So giving people money, if it makes them more selfish, would hurt. Only give people money who will do as much as you're going to do in service for others. You know, if if you can't do that much, then give all your money to the highest source of service you can find in the world. Don't give it to the people who don't deserve it, because then you're just making you're bad karma for you and bad for them. It makes them more selfish. And it makes them more afraid of death. And then they suffer more from that. Okay, so what about this business of individualness? How does that play into this whole thing? Well, there is a direct link between the level of identity of whatever life there is with either the group or its individual nature and how much it's afraid of death. Anything that has more identity with its individual nature is more afraid of its own death. Let me go back to the flower for a second. (laughs) The flower really doesn't have an individual nature. It has a nature that is almost vastly, because it's getting to do group soul, group conscious. 
it, it is conscious of other flowers like it is of itself and, and maybe of all the things that interrelate with it to some extent. But as an individual, nope. And so you can see there is group consciousness at the extreme and individuality at the minimum. I mean, we could take this down to a blade of grass and even go further. Right? So you look at this and you start saying to yourself, now wait a second, that means that something has almost entirely group consciousness and no individual consciousness. It doesn't have any fear of death to speak of anyway. And that's a true statement. But if you reverse this whole thing, human beings are here to develop individuality. And that's the primary, primary part of being human, is to become an individual, unlike our furry friends. And plants. <laughs> and maybe the rocks around them. Uh, so we, we seek to be individuals and to balance our individual nature with, with being group conscious to some extent. But it's still... We seek to be individuals, and that means our fear of death goes sky high, because the individual nature of consciousness is what leads to the fear of loss. If you can't see yourself as an individual, losing consciousness has a relatively insignificant level of fear of loss, because the self itself is, in part, a self because it is seeking individuality. You see, self creates its individuality, which means it creates itself. And humans are a critical part of life because we're the first part of life that this is the focus of life. It's also the focus of God. God created the concept of individual human life so that individuality would be stepped up closer to God itself and we are the part that's on the cross of the space of suffering to reach into the levels closer to uh, our soul and God. The soul is a better balance of group consciousness with individual consciousness, but it has almost no consciousness on an individual scale below its own level. That's what we started the show at tonight. And so from that point, it can't do much. It needs us. It needs each incarnation to create this individuality which also breeds with it the fear of death. It's the curse that comes with the gift. Are you following me? So it isn't like we can just turn a switch on or off to make this thing go away. The science of it is, as I said several times now, is to become unselfish so that we get out of the curse. But it's also the carrot and the pitchfork You've got the um, you, you've got the possibility of becoming great and much more individual, but also much more loving, unselfish. All the enlightened parts of existence; those are all potentials. And at the same time, 
there's the other side. Choose the wrong path, and death becomes the noose around your neck. Interesting analogy. <laughs> but it is true. And so now we have maybe a much better understanding of how this whole process was designed. Looking at it from that standpoint, you can almost say there's a formula here. There's a structure to it. And it is. Uh, and, of course, evil uses it in reverse. But you can see that this is designed to help us find the path to God. It's not designed to punish us. But there is a little bit of a pitchfork there, isn't there? You, if you're afraid of death because you really don't understand what it's about, that's certainly a motivation to probably look for some better answers than the ones that you're plagued with, right? And then as you become unselfish and more and more wise in your thinking, and you notice that the fear of death is dropping away and you're becoming more and more connected to God, which is an immortal being and your soul, then all the stuff that has been the, the plague people, including us, each of us, diminishes rapidly. It could literally go away in a day if a person were to suddenly become very radically spiritual, unselfish, enlightened, whatever words you want to use, because they all have connections to the same concept. And the, the, the possibilities, the potentials, are absolutely remarkable. So this could be done. I'm not saying everybody should do it in a day. I don't even know if that's what we should be aiming for. Because I think it takes much more than that. And trying to do it in a day probably in itself has more motive involved. In it. <laughs> well, I want to do it so I won't be afraid anymore of death. That won't work. Because <laughs> you're self-focused. Because the reason you want to do it is to not be afraid. you got to do it because you want to serve others. And help them maybe not be like that. That would work. But you can't do it for your own sake. The wrong motive will only cause a terrible backlash and probably increased fear in the wrong way. All right. So, uh, what are the answers? Now, I mean, how do we uh, how do we get rid of the fear without whew, uh, doing reruns on Lemuria or Atlantis, which are kind of opposing reruns, but they were both frighteningly, devastatingly bad outcomes. <laughs> we don't want that to, you know, absolutely, you know, don't repeat those kinds of goofy mistakes because we don't need that anymore. This planet's almost finished as it is. We don't need to step it up another crazy notch, moving it closer to its own oblivion. You're talking about death. Death of the whole planet is a lot worse than death of the person. And we are talking about that. Okay. So, what can we do about this? What is the appropriate way to to work on a system of understanding the fear of death and changing it into a benefit rather than a suffering and painful experience? Well, the first unfortunately for some people, is to give up some glamours. 
What do I mean by that? Some desires they have. To not just live forever, because that's the truth, but to have certain things uh, in the process. Not unlike the Atlanteans, in a sense, because they, the later Atlanteans wanted to have certain people with them, certain property and things, you know, forever. And that actually doesn't hold to be true. Uh, you might be uh, have a child, you might be married to someone, you might be friends with someone that you want to stay with. But death doesn't afford us that in terms of timing. Let me explain. Uh, many people want to be around the same people they've always been around. And unfortunately, because of the physics of dimensionality, when you leave one place and go to another in terms of dimensions, you're not just leaving a location. You're leaving a time ratio uh, that has to do with the model of dilation of time. And unfortunately, the time you live in will not be the time that those who have left before you are living in or those who are left behind are living in. This is a grave complexity that has been with us since the beginning of time. And it is difficult for some people to face. Uh, you've got to change the perspective of your life from wanting to be only with a certain person to wanting to do a certain spiritual life that may or may not involve some people that may come in and out of it because you can't do anything about the time problem. What is the time problem? Well, I'll give you an example. Let's say um, a person has a spouse, and the spouse uh, is going to live physically in the physical world for 20 more years. But the person themselves, they're going to leave in fun for the astral. And let's say they're going to go and they're going to live a particularly spiritual life. They're a spiritual person. They're not afraid of death, right? They shouldn't be. But they're going to live in the second astral. So I'll say that's 21 times dilated compared to here. So what do you got? Well, it means you're going to have 21 times more time. But in terms of the amount of time, they have a greater experience they live more time, they they live more of time, because it's closer together, than the people who stay here. So the person is going to be here for 20 years. In 20 years, the person at a 21 times dilation number will be living 420 years. 420. 20 years for the person who stays here. 420 years. Well, actually, that's wrong. I was thinking of them dying at this thing, uh, dying uh, 20... Well, let's just say they die 20 years apart instead of the five and 20. Then it would be 420 years. Well, that's just a huge, huge amount of time. And it's still possible for them to reconnect 420 years later. Um, and that does happen. But the important thing to realize is that the person that's in the second astral subworld I'd only be there another uh, 10 more years than that. And it's even possible, depending upon how long the person who lives in the 
by the time the person here dies, the person in the astral world goes out and lives in the mental world. And then the dilation's even greater. And so they just don't catch up with each other. And if they're not catching up with each other, they can be significantly far enough apart that they won't even be in the same life thing as This sort of thing goes on all the time. It's part of the system. Now, why is it meant to do that? It's meant to do that because even though it's important to have close relationships with people, they should not supplant our mission of spiritual service. Otherwise, we're just living for our astral nature or some other selfishness within us. And what does selfishness do? It makes us afraid of death. How does it come out in these scenarios? Well, one person becomes afraid of loss of the other, or both of them become loss, a fear of loss of each other. They're not afraid of the death itself. They're afraid of the meaning of what the death will, will be. And that is a frightening outcome for some people. So spiritual people can still have a fear of the outcome of death if they're still attached too strongly to glamours, to desires, especially those in their astral nature. Sometimes it's other kinds of selfishness as well, but that's the one that usually catches them. Now, can you get over that? It's tough. Uh, I wrote a book called Afterlife Love where the two people co-serve uh, in both worlds. Uh, it's pretty strange. And uh, and also the option was, in his particular case, this one guy, was to go do some astral traveling to try to meet up with this other girl. But, who, who was his wife, actually. And he actually achieved some results. He also achieved some pretty messed up stuff. But the point is, <laughs> the world is strange enough. You start adding these uh, confusing options, and then it can get pretty twisted. But there there are options. Uh they may not be the ideal one. It may not be the best way to handle the nature of the situation. It is tough. And it happens. It happens every day. Uh, is this a punishment? Not really. Is it caused by selfishness? Always. It's always a result of selfishness that this happens. Uh, because if two people were totally in service together and they weren't the same consciousness, they would not be separated by a time and space. But that's very hard for anything to ever happen like that. Can you get close to it? Yeah, some, somewhat. I mean, the closer they are, the less the actual uh, time-space uh, dilemma issues. And so that's not too bad of an uh, outcome, I mean, really. So really, being unselfish is still the answer. And, and selfishness always seems to creep in and do bad things when people are involved in these equations because uh, it's the way the universe works. Energy follows far greater than its own. All the issues of time and space really follow thought. How people think and then how they interact with others is the ball game. If you choose a selfish life, you're going to have consequences which you won't care for. It doesn't mean you should be afraid of death, but you may not particularly like all the outcomes in life in other dimensions of time and space as you might have prior wanted them to have worked out. This does not mean that we should all sit around and fret about this. I'm just talking about this as one of the potential issues 
in understanding our fear of death and to recognize that there are things that people aren't actually afraid of involved with death itself, but the results of dying, they are because it results in things they don't want. And this is probably the single most uh, serious one, the missing of others. Sometimes others even accounts for animals or pets. It accounts for uh, friends. It accounts for, in some cases, people we have a particular caring about. They may not be even that close to us in some personal way, but they are close to us in what they're doing and we want to support them. And we don't want to leave them. Or we don't want them leaving us. Right? How did the world feel when Nelson Mandela died last year? Well, you know, everybody felt some loss, I think, that had rise to everyone. But a lot of people felt a lot of loss. He was a great conscious being. He wasn't perfect, but he lived in an amazing world. And he changed the whole country, and not just a single country. He changed the results of what was going to be in the future, uh, how to overcome uh, the harshest negative feelings between races of people and people who are estranged due to political and other reasons as well. Uh, he did a lot to help in that, didn't he? And that model will probably be used a number of times in the future with some creative adaptions to it. All right, so those kinds of forces, the world experiences, because he was a world leader. You know someone's a world leader when the whole world <laughs> responds to death, or better yet, when they respond to the things you do in great uh, heroism as a world leader in your life. It's what people do sometimes that really makes a difference. All right. Looking at it from the perspective of what else do we need to do about helping people to overcome their fear of death. Let's talk about children. Uh, this is the part where I usually say, <laughs> let's talk about children. Um, I really strongly uh, think that at the present time, we're making a huge mistake uh, in our educational system in not dealing with the question of death. Now, I understand that people just don't agree about what death is, etc., so this is a real complicated problem. But if I am even 50% right about what I've told you about that, there's a great need to be teaching this you know, on a level where young people can start thinking about it and gain a grasp of it. Because as they grow older, they're going to be experiencing other people dying and, and, and their pets and their friends and their whoever. And so it is necessary, in my opinion, to cover this. Now, I understand a lot of people think that's a purely religious right and it's perfect, you know, it's only for the family. And I agree if that's the way you think, it's fine. I'm just suggesting that it be available. And I would like to see, you know, it available in a weird way. I think there should be a school of death <laughs> where you could take classes at all different ages. I don't care. It starts at, you know, it starts at maybe five years old and goes from there. But where you can go like once a week, once a month, I don't know. And, and just a school where people can just understand death better. And maybe talk to people who are dying. Maybe they could come in. 
<laughs> if you think you can get around at all, or you can go to death if they're in a hospital and or in dying in their home, and you could go talk to them, find out their reality. I think there's a need for an open communication and an open way of teaching about death, preferably what I have suggested is what is in angel's wisdom for people to use because it really changes children. I'm saying this from experience, to have a better understanding of death. How? They very early become less selfish. Very early. Especially if, if you started uh, on or before age seven. It really works. They will be less selfish overall. Uh, and some people tell me, well, I've seen that happen in religions. Well, I think religion can do this. I'm not saying it can't be a religious thing. And some religions teach you about that. And if they do it young enough with children, it seems like the children become less selfish almost immediately. I'm not talking about when they're 30 years old. I'm talking about when they're one month older from the time they start experiencing this stuff. The best time to talk about death is when kids ask about it. And you'd be amazed how fast they ask about it. I've seen three-year-olds asking about it. So I'm saying that it shouldn't be part of everybody's coursework when they go to school, although that's another option. I say, why not have just classes in some way available for people of different ages and, and persuasions uh, that teaches about death, but not just knowledge, especially not just knowledge, but rather, as I'm teaching it conceptually, in spiritual conceptual terms, now, granted, this is going to get into God, but it doesn't have to get into any specific religion, and teach what I teach, or something like it. Sound crazy? Well, it's my fantasy to have schools available. And you could just call up a school and say, I'd like to send my kid for the next month to school for once a week, get some better understanding of depth. When is it available? How many hours a week is it? When are they uh, you know, just uh, it's a sort of like an, an 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 accessory to going to school in general. This is just one extra little thing to do, like extra curriculum of some sort. And you go to that, and um, you know, maybe it's not going to be that long. Maybe each each child decides how long it's going to be by what they're getting out. And maybe there's ten or twenty or a hundred different schools they can choose to go to. And they try one, they might like what they're saying, or might like the school itself, or maybe not. Uh, and maybe the school is also involved, like I said, in doing all kinds of, you know, going to people's homes, teaching, talking to people who might be dying, talking to children who might be dying. Children are dying, right? They're not, it's not just an adult thing. How about having that for them? How about kids who aren't dying having communication with kids who are? This is a big deal for me because selfishness is reduced, oddly, when people understand the fear of death. Because remember the inverse relationship between the two. And understanding is consciousness. So I'm talking about raising the consciousness of our children. What a wonderful thing. It won't just benefit them to not be afraid of death. It'll benefit them to be enthralled with life and concerned and caring about people who are afraid of dying or who are dying. Truly, this could be a really big boom 
two years. depends on the person. And usually they don't work out as good as folks want them to because they usually end up in lower astral realms because their motives are really not to serve other people as much as to, oh, I want to overcome my fear of death, which is a selfish reason, and other factors. Now, so in weird ways, you could become more selfish by doing this, or if you only limit it to like once or twice, it might be worth the, the cost because if you had a lot of fear of death, you might be locked in a spiral of selfishness, it might break that spiral, and you might then do things that define the fear of death and be less selfish for it. It's possible. I'm not suggesting by any stretch that most people do this. I'm saying the few who want to. All right, so, and do I think that there's a worthwhile um, benefit to having some places that might teach astral travel? Yeah, I do. Actually, I think just like the schools for youngsters, I think it might be helpful to have a, a, a couple more maybe, places for adults to go. But I don't know that all those places know what they're talking about or what they're doing. But, I mean, if you could get one that really understands what they're doing, it might be good to have that available, sure. It's no different than children, in, in a sense. I mean, you're trying to overcome the fear of death so that they could become less selfish. To me, it kind of makes sense. Now, be aware that the Atlanteans would have out-of-body experiences, and it made them extremely selfish. But they weren't forewarned that what they were really experiencing was the selfish nature of things. They weren't told that the people they communicated with in the earlier days of the last, uh, uh, in the astral world were probably the most selfish people that ever lived typically, and they were pumping everybody up about how great it was where they were, which was really just a big ego trip for them, and emotionally a, a, a way of sort of getting vicarious kicks out of the uh, convincing people that they were so great they're in the astral blank blank we could make up some name for it. I'm I'm the supreme blank of the Rukugakas over in the here in the astral world. What they really are is probably in the six or seven sub world, um, tooting their own horn and maybe looking for someone to even possess. Because they're probably doing atrocious things while they're living in that place and not letting anybody know about it. Everybody thinks, Oh wow, they're communicating they must be great in numbers. Well, that leads me to my next point. Uh, some people go to places to just hear people pontificate through others here that are supposedly uh, psychic um, that they are communicating through about what's going on over in the astral world. Well, most of that stuff is completely made up. Uh, it isn't made up by necessarily the person who is doing it here. But the person who's really lying is the person in the astral world, if it's true at all. I mean, the person here could be just completely making up, of course, that it could be a lie. But even more worse is the, 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 the folks over on the other side are folks in the lower astral subworld who are trying to convince everybody here how great they are. And they have a grand old time making up the most ridiculous story to get people to come because they, they share this feeling of self-importance with the, the joker who is the quote 
here who is channeling blank blank from the other dimension of Blagukas, you know, it's never real. So it's not really, they're not going to say, well, I'm actually in the sixth sub-world where everybody's just having a grand old time, but they're really extremely selfish, and it's, I, I'm not really important at all. No, they say, oh, I'm from the planet Blagukas, and I came here to tell you all these things, and I'm living in this other dimension of time and space where everybody here are super beings like Leanne. Let me tell you everything you need to know about how to live where you are. Ask me your questions. Well, that's a bunch of nonsense. The beings that want to communicate in the astral world are very careful about it, and it's pretty rigidly run for the most part. If they do it in a collective way, it's 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 controlled. Now, if it's if it's an individual, there's no control. Now, if you go to see someone who's channeling some specific person from the planet, whatever, or from some dimension, it's all bad news. If it's true at all, it's worse than if it's just fake. In either way, it's worthless, other than possibly leading to an increased level in selfishness in all the people who are being duped into this thing. All right, and that increases the fear of death. Why does it increase the fear of death? Because the glamours that are built up in people make them far more selfish. And although they think, well, I don't have to be afraid because the grand whatever on the other side is telling me not to be afraid because it's going to be wonderful when I get over there, you actually get more afraid because you live your life more selfishly and no matter what you claim you believe. Your inner sense especially those spiritual senses, tell you something else. And your fear of death will increase, not decrease, by participating in those events over a period of time. People tell me, oh, I'm not afraid. I listened to the the, uh, the, the great being, and he told me that uh, things are going to be fine, so I'm not afraid about death anymore. And then you talk to them a little bit more, and a little bit more, a little bit more, you realize they're scared, they're really scared of death. But they're repressing it. They're repressing it. Because these stories don't make any sense when you really listen to the things that they tell people to do. And paying a lot of money for it is another thing that obviously should be a dead giveaway. I'm not saying people should make money doing things that are helpful to other people. But this stuff is made to pull people in and get as much as you possibly can out of them in many different ways. That's how they're designed. Wow. Well, that being the case, I hope that you won't go down that road. There are a few genuine, really good psychics in the world who work with people who are doing collectively, trying to communicate with friends and relatives, usually not just any old folks, and are looking for (coughs) the opportunity to at least let them know that they're still thinking of things they love each other. That can lessen fear of death. The problem is knowing the difference. Usually they don't charge for it. And if they do charge for it, it it's, it's not an unreasonable amount. And it's not expecting you to give away the family fortune because you got some crazy advice from some wacko who's been ignored his or her own whole life while physically alive now wants to get something special by pretending to be someone or something. Be careful. 
what about people who are lower psychics who work in the physical world? Can they relieve the fear of death? Yes, some of them can because they sometimes give very accurate and very, uh, you know, intimate information that cannot be made up. It isn't just, you know, general stuff that anybody can say. Um, to some people. There aren't very many of these people, so don't think they're on every street corner. They may be in some locales because half of them or most of them are fake. But there are some genuine psychic people that really do exist. Most of them are kind of weird in themselves, but that's that's a whole other issue. They usually aren't the most conscious. They aren't the most advanced. Their senses are split in some serious ways from incidences in their prior life or whatever, karmic problems. And so they happen to be a lower cycle. That's what it means. They can't use all their senses together. They have one or two that they pull together, maybe three, that they use imperfectly unbalanced, it comes and goes, that might be good at the beginning of the hour, terrible at the end, that kind of thing, because that's the way lower psychism works. They're helped, and they help themselves if they work through a collection of people on the other side who are trying to communicate all together at the same time. And then it does work better, and they get better results. So the ones that are doing this more for the benefit of others, and are pretty unselfish about it, get the best results. They are the best lower psychics, and they really get some people from the other side who want to lessen the fear of death and also let people know that they're thinking of them and they're loved. And, you know, they really aren't gone. The consciousness did not disappear. It's just living in a different body, in a different dimension of time and space. Okay? So... Those are those are kind of the things that can be helpful, and there are, are some things that could be very hurtful. Now, I mentioned about the, how the psychics can hurt you and, and some of the people doing channeling, but there's another thing that, that can hurt people uh, about trying to overcome their fear of death. And it, it, it comes from this. Some people... Uh, have so much substitution of fear of death into other uh, displaced, into other fears, that their whole life is spent, and this is usually kind of getting into neurosis, their whole life is spent trying to avoid, because that's what fear does, most of their life. Now, I'm speaking kind of as a shrink here, but also this has a tremendous amount to do with uh, metaphysics. Because once you start going down the road of repressing your fear of death into all these other fears, and it grows into countless others, um, it's almost impossible to get over them. Because in order to get over them, you have to convert them back to the fear of death. And most people don't want to increase their fear of death, which is the reason they start repressing them in the first place. And the repression leads to this terrible, hopeless state of fear, exaggerated fears about everything. Most fears come from the fear of death. And so if if you want to stop this sort of thing, you almost don't want it to go on. That's the reason I like it with the children. Let's, let's work with them because then we don't have this problem. Or it's very minimal. But if we can't do that, then... The challenge is 
to simultaneously get someone to become more understanding of what that is and the fear that they have of it, while they convert by unrepressing and unidentifying wrongly the fears. There actually is a defense called identification. And they're cha- you've got to change it back to the fear of death. And the first thing is to assume that most of your fears, almost all of them, are, are a version of fear of death. And then it's easier to start going backwards to the point where it started and how to get it, and then put it back into the correct genre where it should be, which is about death. People who are fairly seriously neurotic in this uh, have spent decades repressing the fear of death and then have unbelievable uh, avoidances of almost everything in life. But we're here to become individual and creative, and that is a serious um, interference with that state of mind. And it will, over time, ruin a person's life. And there's not just a few people like this. There are huge numbers. So, how do we do a deal with that? Well, sort of a spiritual psychotherapy might be helpful. Maybe have such a place where they offer spiritual psychotherapy. You go in, you deal with the issues of fears, but you assume that most of them are coming from the fear of death. So, you first see if you can tie it to that. And if it does, then you have a person using various kinds of psychotherapy work through how it isn't something they need to have a fear of because it's an irrational fear in the first place. The weird thing about it is most people think it's very rational to be afraid of that. And then they put it into irrational fears about things that uh, they shouldn't be afraid of. Yet they do it that way as well. It relieves them of the bigger fear of death. So to them, it's like, oh, it's like a tranquilizer. I can identify my fear of death with uh, uh, having a new experience with somebody I never met before, or having a new kind of uh, uh, job that I have to do, or a new kind of thing that I would have to uh, learn, or maybe just all these things that people fear. And then so that's what happens. And then they identify the one fear with the, with the other so that they can kind of uh, deal with these Weird as it sounds, it's easier to deal with fears about things in our life than things we can't control like death. We think we can't control it. Let's move into that. I have some I like, but I'll move. Okay. Well, we may only be able to get through this last part. I have a couple other things I want to talk about. We'll, we'll see how we do it. Okay, so what about folks who then want to um, want to take this to another level, so to speak, and become uh, a, a more creative being by not having either the displacement and identification with the fear of death and its other things, and change their life around to the point where they are becoming a deliberate, uh, we'll call it a meditator and reflector, 
to reverse the 
successful. And if you do, are successful, you can live longer. Or you might not be able to. You should use models of fantasy about this is what we're talking about in this situation that involves different scenarios. Okay, I continue the same level of selfishness. I think I'll live this long because of these various factors coming to play that are destructive to me from my selfishness. Maybe I'll make it to 88. Maybe I'll take it, make it to 105, whatever, whatever age you think you're going And the point is that it's not unreasonable to then say, okay, what's going to happen? How how might I uh, cease to be able to maintain this physical body? And you can go through all of the different steps. There's also the issue of pain and somewhat suffering. Well, uh, I'm in favor of this solution in case you uh, I guess I misled you about out-of-body experiences. I think it's okay for people in the last days of their life to, if they've already had an out-of-body experience, to use that training to leave their physical body so they don't have pain and suffering. Because when you're in your etheric body, there is no sense of pain from the physical body. If you don't feel it. And there's nothing wrong with that model. Because is that any different than morphine? Come on. Which is around right? morphine in the etheric world. I don't take the etheric world myself. So that's still not death, by the way. You're not you're not severing, you're letting the soul do that. You're not committing suicide. You're just relieving yourself of pain and suffering because you understand better what death is and you fear it less and you're more operative in terms of cooperating with the soul. Soul is choosing when you're doing that. And what's best for you? You may even be participating in the whole, the whole operation. Is it possible to get to that point? Absolutely. Matter of fact, again, with the Buddhists, that's what they try to train people to do. I, I'm not usually very successful at it, but whatever. The point is, could we, the people who are listening, do that? Yeah, for sure. As a matter of fact, that's another school I have our training. You know? All the people in hospitals, anybody who's suffering, why do they have to do this? You know, they say, well, I have to use the morphine, and then if I turn it to this level, it'll kill me. So they're giving me an option. Well, I, I guess that's one way to deal with it. It's certainly the way that it's prevalent. But how about, I mean, talking about people who are seriously ill or, uh, you know, that's one part. Many people don't die that way. They die in an accident or suddenly. But the point is that it still gives us the option in those types of circumstances that we have a better one. I think the movement into the etheric body is a, a better one myself if you, if you can do it. Now, uh, some people, when they're very ill, may not be able to exercise that ability. I mean, it's not because they're afraid. They just can't do it. I mean, if you can't, because your senses have lost the ability to focus. You have to, in order to leave the physical body, you have to be able to focus originally on the object. It's really difficult to do if, if the senses are, are, are basically gone. But it's another thing to consider, and I'd like to, I'm going to have to leave you with that particular option. There are a couple other things I want to talk about that sort of keeps us conversation going a little bit more. But I think we've covered pretty well our understanding of the fear of death and death itself to some extent. And um, if it's made a difference, then that's the important thing to me because 
subject that plagues us. As I said, it makes us more selfish. And we have it because we are selfish. It's a constant circle. And uh, if we can break that circle, we may be able to battle evil. And we certainly won't be Putinized, if you know what I'm saying. So I think at this point, uh, we're going to have to end it around time, but uh, if it has made even some of you uh, less fearful, then I've done my job. And I think we can collectively come up with a lot of solutions in the future. Well, until next week, this has been Niles McFarland for Why Life Is.